Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the spy scandal rocking the German government and the roll-up of suspected Russian operatives in the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, Austria, Poland and Slovenia, which suggests there could have been an exodus of Russian spies along with the estimated million Russians who fled their country in protest to Putin's war in Ukraine. Joining us from London is Greg Miller, a national security reporter for the Washington Post, who was among the Post reporters awarded the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting for their groundbreaking stories on Russia's interference in the 2016 election and the resulting investigations of the Trump campaign and administration. He was also part of the team awarded the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for coverage of American surveillance programs revealed by Edward Snowden. He's the co-author of The Interrogators, and his latest book is The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy. And we will discuss his article at the Washington Post, In Wake of Ukraine War, U.S. and Allies are Hunting Down Russian Spies. Then we look into Putin's speech to the nation yesterday and analyze its Orwellian tone along with its Stalinist paranoia and brutality and speak with Marshy Shaw, a professor of history at Yale University who teaches the intellectual history of 20th and 21st century Central and Eastern Europe. She's the author of Caviar and Ashes, A Warsaw Generation's Life and Death in Marxism, 1918-1968, The Taste of Ashes, The Afterlife of Totalitarianism in Eastern Europe, and The Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution. Her forthcoming book is Eyeglasses Floating in Space, Central European Encounters that Came About While Searching for Truth. Then finally, we'll look into Biden's meeting with the Bucharest Nine, who expressed unanimous solidarity with Ukraine, and go to Paris to speak with David Salvo, senior fellow and managing editor of the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. An expert in Russian affairs, his work analyzes the Kremlin's authoritarian toolkit to undermine democracy at home and abroad. Previously, he was a foreign service officer in the United States Department of State, serving most recently as the Deputy Secretary of State's Policy Advisor for Europe, Eurasia and International Security Issues. He's also advised senior-level State Department negotiators on the protracted conflicts in the South Caucasus, worked on U.S. policy towards NATO and the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe, and served overseas in Russia and Bosnia and Herzegovina. And joining us now from London is Greg Miller, a national security reporter for the Washington Post, who was among the Post reporters who awarded the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting for their groundbreaking stories on Russia's interference in the 2016 election and the resulting investigations of the Trump campaign and administration. He was also part of the team awarded the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for coverage of America's surveillance programs revealed by Edward Snowden. And he is the co-author of The Interrogators, and his latest book is The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy. And he has an article at the Washington Post, In Wake of Ukraine War, U.S. and Allies are Hunting Down Russian Spies. Welcome to Background Briefing, Greg Miller. It's very nice of you to have me. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Greg. And your article talks about the January 21st arrest of Arthur Eller in Florida, a Russian with German nationality. And that was followed by an arrest of a very senior person inside Germany's BND, their foreign intelligence service. But the article also points out that there have been roll-ups of suspected 
Russian operatives in the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, Austria, Poland, and Slovenia. Is this connected in any way to rumors that I've heard that there have been a lot of what they call walk-ins, that a lot of Russian intelligence officers, mostly, I guess, from the SVR, are showing up, and in many ways the CIA and the MI6 are kind of burdened with these people, and are they providing the intelligence that are leading to some of these arrests? That's a really good question, and I think it's possible, although it's uh, we don't have evidence that that's happened yet. And, and, and actually, that's sort of a line of inquiry I pursued while we were working on this story and, and spoke to a number of very senior intelligence officials in Europe who actually told me that they, they haven't seen that kind of uh, um, a, a significant number of defections so far, which was a little bit surprising to me. I mean, it, you're right. It looks like given what's happening in Russia, given what's happening in the world and in Europe, you would think there would be a stampede of defectors from the Russian government, from the Russian foreign ministry and its intelligence services. I think it's definitely possible that there is there there are new sources that have surfaced that we aren't aware of yet, who have helped Western security services uh, identify, pursue, arrest, and expose Russian spies in all of these countries that you just ticked off. But I can't say that I, that I know that for sure. But we do know that this spy scandal in Germany is really sort of shaking it's certainly shaking the government and the BND, their foreign intelligence service, which has, I think, long been considered by other intelligence services in the West to be something of a molehill. And this particular mole, Carsten Link, who was working in concert with this fellow, Arthur Eller, who was arrested in Florida, then put on a plane and then arrested in Munich when the plane arrived. Let's start with what the FBI interviewed him about in Florida and what he told them. Sure. So, I mean, you've, you've uh, outlined the case well here. It's probably, it's a, it's a bit convoluted. It's a bit confusing. But the basics are that, uh, that a, a German national, a very senior official in Russia's BND, which is its equivalent to the CIA, uh, is, has been arrested and accused of, of secretly passing highly classified information to the Russian intelligence services for some time. He had an accomplice named Arthur Eller, who's a Russian-born German national who made frequent trips back and forth to Moscow and appears to have carried some of this classified data to Russian services. But uh, as our story goes into detail, I mean, Bizarrely, the Germans couldn't put the case on him uh, or prevent him from leaving Germany. Uh, it was only when he departed and left to Florida in December and the FBI picked up the case that they developed significant evidence that then they passed back to the Germans, which the German authorities used to arrest him upon his return. It's it's a really fascinating sequence because the FBI picks him up in, in Florida, uh, puts him under surveillance, actually intercepts him at the airport when he's trying to make a business trip, prevents him from leaving, takes his devices, 
mirrors and exploits those devices, including a laptop and a phone, and in that sequence gathers intelligence and information that he was, in fact, an accomplice. He, he, he actually confesses to this. He admits it, although in his version of events, he was duped by this German intelligence officer and thought he was doing uh, good work on behalf of the West, not spying on behalf of Russia. But he took so many trips abroad as a courier, bringing money to uh, Linka. I mean, he went to uh, numerous flights to L.A. and New York, Dubai, Baku, Belgrade, Tbilisi, Doha, Qatar, and uh, Doha and Qatar, Shanghai, Geneva, and countless uh, trips to Russia itself. So he's, he was a busy guy, right? Busy guy, made a lot of very suspicious travel, and it is a little... Uh, it does defy um, belief. <laughs> it defies uh, credibility. The idea that he believes that he was carrying this information and bringing wads of cash back to Germany as part of a BND operation instead of a Russian operation, that's, that's the defense his lawyers have put forward. Um, but, you know, to me, it's also just remarkable that that, that, that on its own failed to raise any red flags for the Germans. The Germans didn't didn't know they had a mole in the in the upper ranks of their intelligence service until an operation carried out by another Western service found Russian spy agencies in possession of classified files that came from the BND. Uh, so I mean the, the Germans may not have uncovered this were it not for the work of other intelligence services doing their counter-espionage work for them. And this uh, mole of, for the Russians inside of the BND, he was recently put in charge of counterintelligence, but he, prior to that he was in, in charge of cyber and signals intelligence, and therefore he was able to share information from the NSA and from the GCHQ in the UK there's a fear that he passed up on this top secret information to Russia, particularly as it pertains to Ukraine, either in terms of what the West knows about Russia's involvement in Ukraine and what the West is telling Ukraine about what Russia is up to. So it could be very damaging, right? I think it could be. The Germans uh, have downplayed the extent of the damage in their conversations with other Western intelligence services, according to officials that I spoke with before we published our story. But yeah, the, the potential for great damage is there. And, and clearly, Russia would have high interest uh, in anything from any European security service at this point that gives them any insights into the flow of weapons into Ukraine, into the travels of Ukrainian officials or Western officials in and out of Ukraine, uh, or into the, the willingness of Western governments to continue providing increasingly lethal weaponry to Ukraine. I think the, I think the one reason to to think that perhaps the damage might not be catastrophic is that it's equally unlikely that, say, the United States or the United Kingdom would really trust the Germans with that kind of sensitive information to begin with. It's one thing to, to keep the, the Germans abreast of of, um, of developments in the war, it's another thing to tell them exactly how the United, how the CIA or MI6 knows these things. So Karsten Link and his K-2 
co-conspirator Arthur Erler, they apparently were brought together by a far-right character in, in the far-right populist German party, Alternative for Deutschland, AFD. So let's talk a little bit about that attraction that the far-right in Europe has for Putin, which seems to be the motivation for why this cast and link spied for Russia. We also, in in this country, the United States, we have a kind of far-right pro-Putin caucus in the Freedom Caucus in the House, and we also have you know, people like Tucker Carlson at Fox News. What's the ideological attraction there? Because it's pretty hard to figure out why Putin has a constituency in the West. Yeah, it is hard, uh, especially for those of us who have been around long enough to remember uh, the conservative Republicans who champion themselves as as foes of Russia and the champions of of security issues for the United States when when Russia or the Soviet Union were the main adversary, but but their their affinity uh, admiration for Putin I think comes from a couple things. One is is that they see Putin as a sort of as a world global strongman who fights the same sort of culture war battles that they are fighting. So Putin um, obviously goes to uh, great lengths, including in his speech just yesterday, uh, to um, to denounce Western tolerance of 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 gay and, and lesbian individuals, of of various rights, um, that the the entire sort of woke phenomenon he rails against. Um, and so that resonates with far-right elements in Europe and in the United States. And you're right that that appears to be a motivation for this spy or this mole at the top of the BND. He, he appears to have had um, some connections to this far-right political party in Germany, uh, appears to have been introduced to this courier through, that, through a contact in that party, and we don't know enough about the case yet, but it seems possible that that was a, a major source of motivation for him in his decisions to betray his own country. So, Greg Miller, in your book, The Apprentice, uh, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy, you looked into what was a, a Russian active measures campaign, a kind of subset of espionage, I guess, but it's hard not to assume that if Putin was invested in the 2016 campaign to help elect Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton, he's got to be heavily invested in in probably the best hope that he has in terms of getting out of this Ukraine mess that he's in, and that is to influence the U.S. Uh, House uh, to cut off funds. I mean, if you look at where you are in, in the U.K., the Russian investment or the Putin's investment in Brexit, it was something like £9 million that was funneled to a, a UK insurance guy, which, what a incredibly cost-effective active measure that was. Brexit has paralyzed the UK to this day. Yeah. Uh, they can't yeah. get out from under it. And then there was a recent active measures operation in Stockholm where a right-wing Danish politician burned the Koran in front of the Turkish embassy. Uh, which of course made Erdogan crazy and want to 
stop Sweden from joining NATO, which serves Putin's interests. So do you accept the notion that while these intelligence operations might be getting rolled up, I'm sure Putin is pretty heavily invested in active measures campaigns, is he, is he not? I think, I, think he would, I think he would be. Um, I think there are some constraints that Russia is dealing with at the moment, including the fact that the war has gone catastrophically for Russia, and its intelligence services bear a great deal of responsibility for that and bear a great burden now in trying to fix that. And so there is a sense that the, the Russian spy services are quite preoccupied and a great deal of their resources are, are going toward trying to turn things around in Ukraine. But I think you're right. You know, I think that Putin, one of, one of his bets, uh, which, which was uh, a, one, of his, one of his really terrible bets at the start, one was, of course, that the war was going to be short, uh, might last weeks, and that Russia would be in Kiev and, and holding the levers of power right away. When that, when that scenario um, didn't materialize, I think then Putin really thought, well, the West would not be able to, to sustain the long game here, that energy prices in Europe uh, and political turmoil in the West, and just sort of the, their perception of political weakness and chaos, including in the United States, as a result of things like the January 6th insurrection, made him think that, it, that unit, there would be no Western unity, or if there was, it would be very temporary and would unravel because of all of these fraying political strains in, in Western institutions. Um, so far, that's holding together, but but I'm but I think you're right. Probably that Putin believes that that those will that those will deteriorate over time, and that time might be on Russia's side. Well, Greg Miller, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Great having a conversation with you. Thank you. Well, thank you again. I've been speaking with Greg Miller, national security reporter for The Washington Post, who was among the Post reporters awarded the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting for their groundbreaking stories on Russia's interference in the 2016 election and the resulting investigations of the Trump campaign and administration. He was also part of the team awarded the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for coverage of America's surveillance programs revealed by Edward Snowden. And he's the co-author of The Interrogators, and his latest book is The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy. And he has an article at The Washington Post, In Wake of Ukraine War, U.S. and Allies are Hunting Down Russian Spies. And he joined us from London. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into Bruton's speech to the nation yesterday and analyze its Orwellian tone, along with its Stalinist paranoia and brutality. Listen
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Marcy Shaw, a professor of history at Yale University, who teaches the intellectual history of 20th and 21st century Central and Eastern Europe. She's the author of Caviar and Ashes, A Warsaw Generation's Life and Death in Marxism, 1918 to 1968. The Taste of Ashes, The Afterlife of Totalitarianism in Eastern Europe, and Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution. Her forthcoming book is Eyeglasses Floating in Space, Central European Encounters that Came About While Searching for Truth. Welcome to Background Briefing, Marcy Shaw. Oh, thank you, Ian. Thank you for inviting me back. Well, thanks for joining us. And you were a part of a recent forum conducted by Desite, the German newspaper, at which you said, I'm an American Jew. My great-grandparents fled pogroms uh, in what is now Ukraine. My great-grandmother saw her fiancé murdered before her eyes at a pogrom in a village not far from the Dnipro River. And uh, afterwards, I was taught in Hebrew school by survivors of Auschwitz. I spent my childhood thinking about the Holocaust. I've spent my adult life studying Nazism and Stalinism. I'm terrified of violence. I've never even allowed my kids to have a squirt gun. And now I've spent the past year pleading for lethal weapons to be sent immediately to Ukraine. I've done this with no absence of ambivalence I have rarely experienced. So what was your response then to, or what's your reaction to Putin's speech yesterday and his speech on the state of the nation? I was cringing, but I was not surprised. It was more or less what I would have expected to hear from him, not because I'm such a great prophet, but because it was consistent with how he has behaving. Um, you know, it was a model of lies of conspiratorial thinking and or at, whether he thinks that way, I I don't know, but uh, an attempt to instill in his listeners a sense that the world has been engaged in a conspiracy against Russia. And perhaps above all, it was a kind of grotesque model of Freudian projection in which everything that he himself is doing is projected onto the enemy. Well, he did bring up the tired refrain of they're fighting Nazis and took it even further in an Orwellian sense where he said that they were rescuing Ukrainian children from pedophiles, which what they're in fact doing is they're killing Ukrainians, men who refuse to renounce their Ukrainian identity. They're transporting captured uh, Ukrainian women to Russia's east to marry Russian men, and thousands and thousands of Ukrainian children have been kidnapped and taken into Russia for re-education. So you studied Stalinism. I mean, you have to assume now that uh, Putin is a Stalinist. Well, Putin is certainly a kind of fascist neo-totalitarian. I would call him not a Stalinist because there's no communist ideology here. In fact, there's in some ways, there's a kind of astounding absence of ideology or any kind of ideological coherence, which is arguably the most significant difference that as, as a historian and as a historian of intellectual history, I would say between the Stalinist period, in particular in the Soviet period in general and the present, there's not a coherent narrative. You know, in the beginning, it was we have to go into 
defend the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic, these enclaves of People's Republics that have liberated themselves from Nazi Ukraine. You know, then it was there has been a CIA sponsored, you know, Nazi fascist, Ukrainian fascist coup in Kiev. We have to denazify the country. Then it was, you know, NATO was plotting insidiously and surreptitiously uh, an attack on Russia. And so in order to ensure our own national survivor, we had to launch a preemptive attack. Then it was, we have to restore the lands of Peter the Great and restore the greatness of the Russian Empire. Um, and then it was more recently that the Ukraine has been taken over by Satanist and Zelensky is the Antichrist you know, and we need to go and de-Satanize Ukraine. So I mean, under Stalinism, you there was a, an, an ideology and a narrative that was false. It was fictitious, but it had its own logical coherence and a certain kind of consistency. We're not in this realm of consistency now. Now it's whatever Putin wants to do, and there can be a new story every day. But I guess the similarity is that Putin is another one of these Kremlin gods who engineer reality. Yes, and he believes that he can engineer any reality he likes. I mean, I can I can quote you a little bit of the English translation of this speech, which I fear is not quite as colorful as it sounds in Russian. But you know, he says, since 2014, Donbas has been fighting for the right to live in their land and to speak their native tongue. You know, in the meantime, we were doing everything in our power to solve this problem by peaceful means and patiently conducted talks on a peaceful solution to this devastating conflict. Behind our backs, a very different plan was being hashed. As we can now see the promises of Western leaders, their assurances they were striving for peace turned out to be a sham and outright lies. They were simply marking time engaged in political chicanery, turning a blind eye to the Kiev regime's political assassinations and reprisals against undesirable people. They increasingly incited the Ukrainian neo-Nazis to stage terrorist attacks, the officers of nationalist battalions trained at Western academies. The U.S. and NATO quickly deployed their army bases in secret biological laboratories near Russian borders. They mastered the future theater of war during war games, and they prepared the Kiev regime, which they controlled in Ukraine, which they enslaved for a large scale war. And this is all fictitious. This is all created in Putin's head. And it's all in various ways, things that Russia itself did that have now been projected you know, onto, onto the enemy. And of course, this is, we're talking about a one year anniversary coming up on Friday. It's in fact, the war began in 2014. So we're really in the ninth year of this war. And if you go back to 2014 and the revolution against Yanukovych, who was standing literally beside Manafort in the palace when they were slaughtering uh, Ukrainians in the Maidan outside, it was all about, not about NATO expansion. That wasn't the issue. It was joining the EU. And Putin and his apologists in the West keep talking about NATO expansion. I mean, it's as though, you know, a serial killer could could certainly blame his parents if he was brutalized and beaten by his father, for example, but he still is responsible for his crimes. I mean, I cannot believe that we're falling for this idea that NATO expansion was the issue. It was 
joining the EU. And, you know, what does Putin offer? He offers gangster government. So why can't the people like the Ukrainians uh, have democracy and the rule of law? I think if I, I, I have no privileged epistemological access to what is going on in Putin's head, but if, if I had to offer a hypothesis about what was most threatening, you know, about Ukraine for Putin, you know, I would say that it has to do with what he projects in those sentences where he says, oh, and, and the, you know, you, the evil West has taken the poor Ukrainians prisoner and they have been held captive and, you know, they are mere objects of Western, of, of Western insidiousness and Western evil. And I think he, he denies them subjectivity. And one of the ironies here is that you have what is in many ways a kind of imperial colonial situation in which subjectivity has emerged on the part of the colonized and not the colonizer. You could almost make this into a kind of Hegelian master-slave dialectic. And I think what was so threatening for Putin about the Maidan and this, this taking over of Crimea and the instigation of the war in the Donbass in 2014 immediately followed you know, the victory of the revolution on the Maidan was that these were also post-Soviet people speaking a common language. Ukraine is really a bilingual country. Now people understandably don't want to speak speak Russian, but the Russian was very much a language of the Maidan. And they were doing something that Putin was terrified of happening in Russia. They were asserting themselves as, as subjects, as political subjects, as individuals, as human beings who wanted to be treated as people and not things. And I think that was the threat um, to Putin. So in your piece, in the Desite Forum that you were, were a part of, you say that in May of 2016, I traveled to St. Petersburg for debates on Europe organized. And the topic was Russia's relationship to Europe. And the conversation continually returned to the question, who should apologize and to whom? Germans had long before apologized for Nazism. Why had Russians not apologized for Stalinism? So we know that Putin shut down Memorial. And the latest reading from the only polling organization in Russia, Levada, tells us that 80% of Russians believe in Putin's narrative. So this is the, the unfortunate reality. Propaganda works. What is happening inside Russia, I think, in some ways, has been a little bit of a mystery to all of us. It's unclear to what extent we can trust the opinion polls. Um, it's unclear to what extent we can get in the mind of the average Russian. But what we know is that people have not risen up against him, and not enough people have. And now you have a situation where everybody who is in the opposition has fled the country, you know, or is in prison. Yeah, and so we're we're dealing with a kind of selective sample. But I think if there's there's something, and I'm not the only one to think this, that kind of explains what what uh, Volodymyr Rafenko has called the anthropological catastrophe of Russia. It's precisely this sense of a lack of agency. You know, whether or not Russians believe specifically what Putin is telling them, they they go along with it or they don't feel, they don't trust themselves. Um, this is an argument that the philosopher Anna Yampolskaya has made. They don't trust themselves to be agents, to be subjects listening critically and making their own judgments. And I think that's that, that absence of agency, that absence of political subjectivity, I think is the single most glaring difference 
between Ukraine and Russia and between those populations as it's emerged in the past 30 years. And of course, Putin is filling up the gulags and the jails with political prisoners at the same time releasing criminals who are then being recruited by the Wagner mercenary group to fight in Ukraine uh, in these wave attacks where they are just mowed down. And Prigozhin has been on state TV, he's had his agency there, as have these military bloggers who are calling for the most bloodthirsty escalation in Ukraine. And of course, Prigozhin and his people have gone on TV and executed, you know, traitors, as they call them, or deserters, by beating their heads in with a, a sledgehammer. And this is shown live on television. So mm -hmm. something has happened. There's a, there's a darkness there. This is, this is not the country of Chekhov at the moment. Um, I could make two points there. One, the advantage that people like Putin and Prigozhin have is a total absence of limits, a total absence of moral constraint. In that sense, it really is a Dostoevskyan situation. You know, if God is dead, everything is permissible. I mean, if you don't care about other people's lives at all, if they mean nothing to you, then there's nothing to constrain you. And both Putin and Prigozhin, you know, who has such a grotesque absence of a moral compass that I don't even know that we have language for it. They are willing to bleed their own populations indefinitely. They simply don't care how many people they kill. And I don't even know that they're thinking about them as human beings, which I think in, in some ways is the, the heart of the whole pathology in Russia, the sense of, are you thinking of people as human beings who have agency, who can make decisions, you know, who are, are subjects and not objects? This is also, I think, at the heart of the problem of the inability of Russians to confront the past. Um, and there's a great book coming out by the, the exiled now Russian novelist, Sergei Lebedev, about this, and this has been his obsession, that Russians have been unable to confront the Stalinist crimes of the past in which they were simultaneously implicated and victims, you know, and unable to kind of look that in the eye. And I, I can tell you a, a short anecdote that um, for me encapsulates this problem. I have a sociologist friend, uh, my generation, as you know, so born around in the early 1970s, um, for, who is, is currently in Vienna, and she was raised in Soviet Kiev, studied in Petersburg, um, then studied in Germany, and she does sociological research. And after the Maidan, in the years after the Maidan, she was doing sociological research in Russia, and one of the questions she was posing to her Russian respondents was, what steps can be taken? What can we do now to ensure that something like Stalinist terror does not happen again? And when she came back, she said, Marcy, not only did they not have an answer, they didn't understand the question. That for them, that Stalinist terror was like, she used the phrase in German, Naturgewalt. You know, it was like a violent act of nature, like a tsunami, you know, or a rainstorm. You can't stop the, the rain. I mean, best case scenario, you can have an umbrella in the closet, but what can you do? And I think that that's the heart of the problem. And if people are simply passive objects, 
kind of going along with things and not feeling responsibility. The other side of that is that their leaders feel that these are are objects that are wholly dispensable. And the whole strategy at the moment in Eastern Ukraine just seems to be that you use you know, thousands of people as limitless cannon fodder. So given that the victimizers have, in effect, coerced the victims in, into into a kind of compact of delusion here, and I don't know that there are better angels left, as you say, Marcy, the, so many people have left and fled, and is there any other solution to this apart from the necessity for Putin's defeat? Because even if he's defeated, which is necessary, Maybe there's nothing left in Russia to remove him. And uh, the only other political figure that we know about is uh, Petrushev, who's even more of a rabid nationalist. He just met with Xi Jinping's top advisor. So is there a solution here apart from the necessity to prevent Putin from winning? And by the way, he does have a lot more advantages than the Ukrainians have. I mean, uh, he's not being touched by this war. He's able to destroy the country next door, but the country next door to him cannot strike back at him. So there's a terrible asymmetry here. There's a horrific asymmetry. I mean, the, the civilian population of Ukraine is bearing the cost of this war. And yes, the war is being fought in Ukrainian territory, you know, and in part because of you know, both European and American reluctance to allow any of their weapons to cross over into Russia, the Ukrainians are very constrained. You know about where they can target, and so of course it's right. The Ukrainians were bearing all the cost of the war, to you know, for the, the the huge percentage of it. Um, I I wish I could see a solution. I mean, my 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 only strong conviction in this sense is that Ukraine has to not only win, but Ukraine has to win decisively. You know, Ukraine has to win in a kind of you know Germany in nineteen forty five type of way. You know, Putin's regime has to completely fall. There needs to be some kind of a total reset. Um, my Russian friends and the opposition, you know, have talked about how the country has to be partitioned or it has to be totally reorganized or it has to be under occupation or I don't know what that would be, but I know it has to be complete. That regime has to fall totally. I think people are, are feel now, well, Putin is threatening with nuclear weapons and so we shouldn't make him angry. We should appease him. The fact that he has nuclear weapons is a reason his regime needs to be defeated completely. It's not a reason to appease him. You know, he will just keep going, you know, until somebody makes the situation stop. I also don't think it's in any way reasonable to say, well, there should be some negotiated solution and Ukraine should be willing to give up some of these territories in the east and allow Putin to save face. And the point that's almost too obvious, but somehow often gets overlooked outside of Ukraine, which has been made many times by Ukrainians, um, is that from the point of view of Ukrainians, those lands in the East are not pieces of earth. Those are people, you know, and you can't 
sell out those people to the reign of terror that the Russian occupation has been. It hasn't just been that, you know, one government changes to another government and the Russian soldiers come in and they set up torture chambers, you know, and they, they kidnap children, you know, and they send them away. And they are these 20 year old Russian soldiers who are torturing by electric shock, these middle-aged women who could be their mothers. Well, Marcia Shora, thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Marcy Shaw, who's a professor of history at Yale University, who teaches the intellectual history of 20th and 21st century Central and Eastern Europe. She's the author of Caviar and Ashes, A Warsaw Generation's Life and Death in Marxism, 1980 to 1968, The Taste of Ashes, The Afterlife of Totalitarianism in Eastern Europe, and The Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution. Her forthcoming book is Eyeglasses Floating in Space, Central European Encounters that Came About While Searching for Truth. Get to Cabri Station break. We're back looking into Biden's meeting with the Bucharest Nine, who expressed unanimous solidarity with Ukraine. I met a young woman whose body was burning. I met a young girl, she gave me rainbow. I met one man who was wounded in love. I met another man who was wounded in hatred. And it's a hard. Senor. Can you tell me where we're heading? Lincoln County Road or Armageddon? Seem like I've been down this way before. Is there any truth in that, senor? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Salvo, who is a senior fellow and managing director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy of the German Marshall Fund, an expert in Russian affairs. His work analyzes the Kremlin's authoritarian toolkit to undermine democracy at home and abroad. Previously, he was a foreign service officer in the United States Department of State, serving most recently as a Deputy Secretary of State's policy advisor for Europe, Eurasia, and international security issues. He also advised senior-level State Department negotiators on the protracted conflicts in the South Caucasus, worked on U.S. policy towards NATO and the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe, and served overseas in Russia and Bosnia and Herzegovina. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Salvo. Thank you, Ian. Great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Bucharest Nine have been meeting with President Biden today in uh, Poland. And, of course, they're mostly the former Warsaw Pact countries from the Baltics to Bulgaria. Among them, of course, is Hungary, which is a standout. It seems to me that the people that, particularly in the Baltics and those that lived under the occupation of the Soviet Union, uh, have been the most vocal and dedicated, if you will, to helping out Ukraine. I'm astounded that it has taken so long to get the weapons that they've been asking for, and particularly the ammunition. So is there a lag, David, between the rhetoric of which we're getting, which is very optimistic, if not triumphal, on the part of Biden and others, and the reality of what the Ukrainian soldiers at the front crying out for? 
Well, I think there's been a bit of a lag since the beginning, and not all of that is necessarily, um, you know, the Biden administration is not necessarily to blame for all that. There are domestic politics in the United States as well that have to be juggled in, in considering these weapons requests. But yes, in short, there's a lag between the cries for assistance from the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian military, and the um, procuring and provi provision of those weapons to Ukraine, I think we're going to continue to hear more and more cries from President Zelensky for even more sophisticated weapons. The HIMARS that the Biden administration most recently provided to um, allow the Ukrainians to um, shoot down more uh, Russian uh, missiles, those weapons are now, they're not obsolete, but the Russians have moved um, weapons behind the range uh, of the HIMARS and, and Ukraine is already asking for, for more, uh, for more weapons that could strike sort of deeper into uh, behind Russian lines. So this is gonna, I think, be a continuous sort of call and response. And the administration working with Congress is gonna try to have to galvanize continued bipartisan support for, uh, for, these, for this military assistance. Well, apparently the Estonians are trying to put together a consortium of, of the NATO countries to coordinate their production, for example, of howitzer shells. We've learned that the Ukrainians burned through in one day the amount of 155mm howitzer shells that U.S. factories produce in one month. So that's a pretty alarming statistic. It is, and it's a real, it's part of the calculus that um, all of the allied countries are going to have to face, and especially here in the United States where, you know, the the production is a serious issue. And I think, you know, there have even been, not, not concerns, but observations by uh, military, former military officers that, you know, the, the pace of production can't quite keep up with the demands if this war is going to continue for the long term and as you know as you know it doesn't seem like there's any end in, in sight in the near term so a consortium is a great idea i think uh, you know there's been some help from european countries in providing weapons to the ukrainians and that's been i think unexpected and extremely welcome that's going to have to continue um if ukraine's going to get everything that it needs to wage this war so let's talk about President Putin's speech yesterday on the state of the nation. And analysts over here suggest that he's essentially playing by this nuclear saber-rattling. He's trying to scare the, uh, the people in Germany and other NATO countries and here in the United States because that's the, that's the best strategy that he has. I mean, his, Putin's best play is, is effectively to stir up the pro-Putin caucus in the House of Representatives led by the Freedom Caucus, the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, that crowd, along with Tucker Carlson at Fox News. And it seems to, that that is really what the strategy is, the hope that he can, he's not doing well on the battlefield, but he's hoping to break the uh, resolve of the populations uh, supporting NATO and the United States. Would you uh, agree with that analysis? I would agree in part. I think that um, the primary audience for President Putin's speech was 
the Russian people. And I think in that respect, we didn't learn all that much new from the speech. It's the same sort of tired arguments and grievances that we've heard from President Putin for years now that, you know, the West is to blame. The West started this war. Um, you know, Russia's un, un, unbreakable. We will, you know, we will persevere in the long run. Yes, we have to make sacrifices, but, you know, it's the West that will blink first. Sanctions aren't working. Um, you know, really, I think that was the the primary audience. But there is, you know, there is a foreign policy dimension to uh, President Putin's remarks. And I think it is no surprise that he is trying to um, give more life to the uh, parts of, of democratic governments that um, and parliaments and Congress that are skeptical about the need to provide further military assistance to Ukraine. And I think Putin is signaling both that Russia is in this for the long haul militarily and that the nuclear option will remain on the table. And uh, yeah, I agree with the analysis that that is to um, further scare those wings of the body politic in our countries in the West um, to try to break Western resolve and ultimately end the, the supply of, of arms to the Ukrainian military. So what did you make of the meeting uh, yesterday between Putin and the top Chinese diplomat Wang Yi, who was also at the Munich Security Conference? Wang said that the ties between Russia and China cannot be influenced by other countries, obviously referring to the United States. On Friday, on the uh, first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Xi Jinping is supposed to offer up a peace plan. What do you think is going on there? I, I I laughed when I heard the notion of a peace plan as if China could somehow be a neutral arbiter in, in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine when it, you know, it calls its its friendship and its ties with Russia essentially unbreakable and has been a vocal um, uh, supporter of the Russian position, even if it's has concerns perhaps about how the war has been waged and, and probably does want to see war uh, come to an end sooner rather than later. But, you know, there's there's no peace plan that Beijing can credibly put on the table here. I mean, first of all, Ukraine's not going to come to the negotiating table um, right now. Why would it? Second of all, I can't imagine that Beijing would put forward a peace plan that would be uh, favorable to Kiev here. So I, I think it's, you know, a bunch of baloney, frankly. But I also think that Xi Jinping is probably going to go to Moscow and ask President Putin to cool it on the nuclear saber rattling. I don't think that um, is in China's interest here. I don't think it wants to be seen as supporting um, a power that is so openly threatening to wage nuclear war. So I think, you know, behind closed doors, there may be slightly different messages that are, are given to President Putin. So... David Salvo, we mentioned the polling in Russia, 80% support for continuing the war against Ukraine, if not escalating it. You're in Paris now. You've been in Brussels. What's your reading on how the uh, NATO allies feel, the, particularly the man in the street, in terms of supporting this war? Because we're, obviously there, it's a possibility that the House Republicans, uh, McCarthy's very much influenced by... Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Freedom Caucus. We know that on the Senate side, McConnell and company seem to be fairly uh, 
in support of continuing to, to supply military aid and economic aid to Ukraine. But obviously, over the long term, uh, it's going to be a political battle here in the United States. What are you noticing in Europe in terms of their resolve to stick with Ukraine? Yes, yeah, certainly among the you know the political and, and national security establishments, I don't see much to indicate at this point that there is um, weakening of that unity, and I think that's important because that's you know President Putin is obviously trying to drive a wedge between Europeans and you know arguments about you know economic backlash in, in Europe uh, because of sanctions and because of. The military assistance that's being provided to Ukraine, like he thinks that that is resonating among the European public, and it is with certain wing elements of the European public. But among the decision makers, I don't see any indication that support for Ukraine is weakening whatsoever. Now, are the Euro- Europeans worried about what may happen in the United States come 2024 and change of administration? Yeah. Uh, they are. I mean, they. I think after the experience of 2016 and the Trump administration, where you know the the future of the U.S. commitment to to European security and the transatlantic alliance was called into question. I don't think the Europeans take anything for granted anymore in terms of our posture here uh, in Europe, and that includes Ukraine. But I think there's probably less nervousness about what might happen over the next two years with the Republican-controlled House um, than there is about what might happen in a future presidential administration in two years. So in terms of the Putin and Biden talking past each other, you've got Putin with this really paranoid speech and blaming America for the war in Ukraine uh, and telling the Russian people that the, the West is out to get them and destroy them and also putting Russia's nuclear forces on a hair-trigger alert as well as, of course, suspending the only nuclear treaty, which in itself is, I'm not sure, is even possible. There seems to be some mixed signals coming from the Russian foreign ministry about that. But nevertheless, it's not none of that stuff is good. But on the other hand, you've got Biden there in Kiev and then later in Poland. And, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of triumphalism. And I'm not convinced that the Ukrainians are winning because there's a, there's a fundamental asymmetry Russia is free to destroy Ukraine, but Ukraine can't strike back at Russia. And the only way that the, that you can level the playing field for Ukraine is to supply the weapons that they're getting from NATO, and they're not getting them fast enough in insufficient quantity. So two things worry me. One is that the two nuclear powers are talking past each other, which is not good. And two, we're sort of keep saying how Ukraine is winning, and I'm not sure that it is. So address those two in the last couple of minutes, if you will. Sure. I think in terms of who's who's winning, I would argue that in the short term, the fact that with our military assistance, the Ukrainian military has been able to inflict so much damage on Russia, uh, the Russian military, and that and because Russia has been really unable to hold um, significant amounts of territory, that to me speaks to at least short term, a short term Ukrainian victory. Now, in the long term, you're absolutely right. Ian. like I, I don't see how Ukraine can over several years sustain this sort of fight without continuous and more sophisticated Western support. Um, and whether that can happens is still a question. 
So, you know, I, I, I do believe that in the short term, we can call sort of, I don't know if victory is the right word, but it's, it's been a Ukrainian success story um, and a Russian, largely a Russian failure. Um, but over the long term, that calculus can easily change just because of the sheer number of troops and weapons that Russia has at its disposal. Uh, as for Putin and Biden talking past each other, I mean, the this, the nuclear saber, rat, saber rattling is certainly serious and alarming. But I also think that Putin has in mind a longer term calculus that at some point the West is going to blink. And at some point the West is going to grow tired of supporting Ukraine. And at some point the West is going to tell Ukraine, sorry, we have no more weapons to give you. You should go to the negotiating table. And so I think that you know, I don't believe, although the suspending participation in the START Treaty is alarming, putting nuclear weapons on a high alert or high readiness is obviously alarming. I do believe that it's still an option of last resort for President Putin to order the use of nuclear weapons and that he's going to try to just wreak as much havoc on the Ukrainian military, especially this spring, regain as much territory in these so-called annexed regions of, of Ukraine as he can in the southeast and Donbass and hope that that's enough to sort of drive a wedge in, in Western resolve and, and have the West sort of go to Ukraine and say, maybe it's time you come to the table. I don't think the West is going to reach that point anytime soon. Um, so I think that sort of ups the ante for um, how heavy a fight we're and how tragic of a war is, is still in our future. Um, but I, I am hopeful that even with talking past each other, we're not... Um, yet approaching a point of sort of nuclear brinksmanship. Well, David Salvo, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with David Salvo, who's a senior fellow and managing director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund, an expert on Russian affairs. His work analyzes the Kremlin's authoritarian toolkit to undermine democracy at home and abroad. Previously, he was a Foreign Service Officer in the United States Department of State, serving most recently as a Deputy Secretary of State Policy Advisor for Europe, Eurasia and International Security Issues. He also advised senior-level State Department negotiators on the protracted conflicts in the South Caucasus, working on U.S. policy towards NATO and the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe, and served overseas in Russia and Bosnia and Herzegovina. And he joined us from Paris. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.